Hey, in this session, we're talking about New Testament pivot points that led toward multiplication in the early church. Multiplication of disciples, multiplication of towns, villages, multiplication of countries, um, multiplication that reached to you and me. More people knowing the Lord, more churches planted, a little bit more of everything. And so there were these pivot points, these times when they had to make decisions that seemed at the time probably pretty difficult for them, as do pivot points in our own lives. And so we're going to look at some instructions that come prior to the pivoting, some instructions that come after the pivoting, but we're going to focus on these pivot points. As we end up, I'm going to challenge you to identify at least five pivot points that your church is going to face uh, times that you're going to have to make some hard decisions. You're going to have to pivot. We've done this. Uh, it's outmoded or it doesn't contribute to multiplication. It's become a waste of our time, a waste of our resources. And we're going to probably step on some toes as we do this. So you, you want to go slow in implementing, but you want to go fast in identifying and figuring out just exactly what are these things that we're going to have to deal with if we're going to get to the future that God has for us. And so I want to talk about what I call pre-pivot instructions. And uh, this is, you know, Jesus actually working with the people that followed him. And the, the first, there's four of these. The first of these is the call to fish for men. And we find this in Luke chapter 5, the first 11 verses where Jesus is walking by the shore. And you know the story. He tells them to dump the net on the other side and they catch a whole lot of fish. And then he says, come and follow me. But if you read the Gospel of John, you find that these people probably already had some sort of a relationship with Jesus, at least a casual acquaintance. So this isn't just, you know, going out in the street and grabbing people or handing out tracts or anything like that. This is calling people who you know, who have something that you can see that's worth investing in them, and you call them to follow after you. I mean, this is kind of the classic follow me as I follow Christ that every one of us in, engages as we're working with our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers. The second pivot point that I see here is the sending of the 12. And um, uh, to, it may be a pivot point for you. You know, when back in the Jesus movement particularly, uh, where we were still trying to gain traction, we organized groups of, you know, basically fanatics. The people who'd show up to these things are pretty serious about Jesus. And we'd go to places like the Los Angeles airport and we just buttonhole people, but we always went in twos, just like Jesus says here in, in Luke chapter 9, verses 1 to 6. And we sent out a small group at two by two, and then we gathered together, and we'd go, here's what happened. And this was just kind of really practice for what's going to happen in your neighborhood, what's going to happen in your workplace, whatever. Because when you button people, buttonhole people at the airport, you don't have any real relationship with them. And, and so there isn't really much to lose. We'd get kind of shy people to share their faith uh, just by talking to somebody that they didn't know. But again, I see this as just a training venue for the 12 as Jesus is getting ready to give them the Great Commission maybe a couple of years later. And then the next pivot point, the third that I see here in terms of his pre-pivot instructions uh, is the sending of the 72. He's actually acting out the things that he's trying to teach them. But again, it's 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 pre the major points that move toward multiplication. These are just learning situations. And this is the sending out of the 72 in Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 23. A, a, a wonderful story to preach through. 
And the thing that is so important to me here is the identification of the person of peace. And then secondly, uh, the, the, the instruction, stay with this person, stick on this person, build relationship. And, you know, as I look at my own church, I'm thinking about uh, the people that have one foot in our church and one and, and in our culture and one fit in, foot in another culture uh, outside of ours. It may, there may be a language barrier. There may be a lifestyle barrier. Uh, there may be we just got a jail barrier, all of these things. But I'm looking for that person of peace. And, and then the, the, the very important instruction is stick on them and build a relationship make something that is lasting. The last of the pre-pivot instructions is something that Jesus acted out. And this is when he met the woman at the well in Samaria, and he crossed both ethnic, in terms of Jews and Samaritans, and gender barriers in that men didn't talk to women in the street in those days. In fact, it kind of confused the disciples when they returned from grabbing lunch. They're trying to figure out what the heck is he doing talking to this woman here. But again, he's now demonstrating. But this is still in, in the instructive phase as far as I'm concerned. So now we want to get into the pivot points. And this is the, the real meat of the thing. I can identify eight pivot points toward church multiplication that I can find in the New Testament. You may be able to find more. Uh, you may disagree and there may be less. But I think these eight are very, very significant. And I'm going to couple some scriptures together as I discuss them. So let's get into these New Testament pivot points that led toward church multiplication. Number one, to me, as I group them together, is the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28 and Acts 1.8. I believe these are two separate events, but basically it's the same instruction. All authority is mine. Uh, go and teach. Make disciples of all nations. Go from Jerusalem to Judea. To Samaria to the ends of the earth. You know, I used to just, just be weighed down by Matthew chapter 28. I memorized the whole gospel of Matthew in my senior year in high school for a contest. And um, it, just, it just weighed on me. And then one day I kind of woke up to Acts chapter 1 verse 8 and I, I realized I have a personal Jerusalem, a personal Judea, a personal Samaria, and then somewhere in the ends of the earth, God has something for me to do. And that took the weight off my shoulders. I had to accept responsibility, but it narrowed the responsibility to where it was workable. And so to me, it's a major pivot point now from Jesus having disciples who follow him to having disciples who he's sending out. And that's the pivot that is involved here. The pivot from follow me to I send you. The second pivot point is kind of fourfold. I, I, I may be cheating here just a little bit. Uh, to me, the pivot point is that the gospel moves out of Judea. If you read in the early part of Acts, you know, everything happens in Jerusalem. But by Acts chapter 5, uh, there's something going on in the villages of, of Judea. And uh, in, in Acts chapter 8 verse 1 actually accomplishes Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And this is where Everybody is in fear of Saul of Tarsus, and just ordinary people scatter, and everywhere they go, they go preaching the gospel. So this is kind of a sub-point under number two, under the gospel moving from Judea. Sub-point A is that ordinary people scatter. Sub-point B is in the same chapter, Acts chapter 8, and it's verses 4 to 40, 
And this is where Philip goes to both Samaria and Ethiopia. So now we've already gone in the first part of Acts from Jerusalem to Judea. Now we're into Samaria, and when we hit Ethiopia, we're looking at the ends of the earth. And so we're actually seeing Acts chapter 1, verse 8, fulfilled in Acts chapter 8 throughout the whole chapter. Acts chapters 9 and 10 are where Peter goes to the Gentiles and then gets in trouble with the church in Jerusalem and has to explain himself. I think it's significant that the Bible, that the Holy Spirit in the Bible takes up so much space by talking about the event of Peter going to meet with Gentile people and then his explanation of the event, which basically duplicates what you read in the chapter before. I think it was a significant thing in the minds of the people in the, in the early days of the Christian church, and it should be significant in our mind that we would go to people who are not like us. And then the gospel goes to the Mediterranean and to Antioch in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 and 20. First, you see people who have run away from Jerusalem spread pretty much throughout the Mediterranean world as you kind of read there and then read in between the lines. And then they get back to uh, Antioch in the mainland. And some people talk to Jews only. Other people talk to Greeks only. But the, the, the gospel has now really, really very well spread outside of Judea. And so to me, again, pivot point number two is the gospel moving outside of Judea. Number three is where a feared persecutor joins the team. This is Acts chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Barnabas has been sent by the disciples in Jerusalem who didn't figure out, is this a good thing or not that's going on in Antioch? He reports back, it's a wonderful thing. And then he hauls off to get his friend Saul from Tarsus, who he's already befriended, a thing that many of us have a hard time doing is befriending a former enemy or befriending somebody who has um, maybe had a, a real rough life. I doubt that you as a, as a church leader have that problem, but there are people in your church that are going to get a little freaked out when you start bringing the wrong kind of people into the team. And this is exactly what Barnabas did. And then, of course, the next pivot point is when there was intentional deputation of missionaries, and this is all Acts chapter 13, uh, first few verses, and, and and we see these guys. Interesting to me, uh, both Barnabas and Saul, as he's called at the time, are Jews who grew up in Gentile territory, and, and so they're bicultural people. And where do they go? Well, the first place they go is to Cyprus, where Barnabas comes from, and they're able to 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 talk to this uh, mixed ethnicity. You know, one of the best things that ever happened in my life is that the first photograph that I have of myself with a person outside my family is me with a little black kid named Otis White. Uh, we just look like two little monkeys sitting under a tree with earmuffs on. It must have been cold weather. But you know what? Kids are not born racist. We People learn those things. I My first job was with all Japanese kids. In high school, I was a nerd, kind of rejected by the jocks and the, all the white kids. And the black guys took me in. I, I ate lunch for three and a half out of four years uh, at a table that was just, everybody was black except for me. I look at that and go, this is really valuable stuff in my life. It makes it really easy for me to work with other ethnicities. 
I live in a very multi-ethnic neighborhood. I'm used to working around the world. I get into an all-white environment. I start to feel a little nervous, a little maybe of the fear that some people feel also uh, when they get into this. But this whole idea of of deputizing people intentionally. I love the fact that it's a multi-ethnic group that lays hands on, on Barnabas and Saul as they send them out. The next really important pivot that I see comes about in Acts chapter 14 and it's verses 19 to 23. And this is when when Barnabas and, and Saul have been identified as gods and then turns out that they drag Saul out of town and they stone him. And um, uh, they, this is at Lystra and, um, and, and, and then they leave him for dead and you know the disciples gather around they probably prayed for him the Lord restores him uh, Barnabas and Saul go back into the villages where they've been and it only names four of them there and maybe you can read a fifth into it but they do an incredibly different thing they take disciples who are just ordinary people who are doing whatever they're doing making wine, cobbling shoes, beating nails, whatever it was that they were doing. And these disciples begin to be identified as elders in the church. And it says a really significant thing that we do a really horrible job of today. And it is that they entrusted them to the Holy Spirit in whom they had put their trust. This business of trusting the Holy Spirit in other people is a major pivot point that you're going to have to pass through if you're going to establish a culture of church multiplication in your congregation. After this, we come to Acts chapter 15, and Gentiles are accepted without circumcision. You know, we have a lot of things going on in our churches. Um, you know, the Bible says in the Old Testament, you shouldn't get tattoos on your body. Well, you know, if you excluded everybody with tattoos from your worship team, you're in trouble. Uh, the, the, the world is changing and we're going to have to learn to adapt to people without compromise, but adapting to people who are very, very different from us and not asking them to do any more than the New Testament asks them to do. Not ask them to do any more than Jesus asks or the Paul in the epistles and, and just kind of reduce what we call our ecclesial minimums to a true New Testament minimum. And then the seventh of these pivots, I think, is in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 3. But it spreads throughout uh, um, Timothy and Ephesians and Romans and whatever. And it's when Paul goes to work for Aquila, the tent maker. If you follow Aquila through the New Testament, what you see is a man who's got enough wealth that we find him in three cities. When Paul meets him in Corinth, He's part of the people who have been kicked out of Rome. He, toward the end of his life, he ends up back in Rome. So I don't know what that's all about. All I know is he's a tent maker. He's able to employ Paul, and he's a, he's a ministry guy. And so I see him as a professional businessman who is a freelance ministry guy. And I think we're really missing the boat. We're going to get into this business eventually of doing microchurch with freelance career people as church planters. And I think this is really crucial to the future of the church as we see it today in the United States, much more important than it was even 10 or 15 years ago. And the eighth of these pivots is when Paul in Acts, again, chapter 18, verses 6 to 11, uh, just turns away from the Jews and, and turns to the Gentiles. Now, 
This doesn't mean he rejects the Jews. We know that in Romans, he, you know, he said he'd give up his own salvation if he could have the house of Israel come to know Jesus. But the crucial thing here is that rather than only focusing on this kind of people, I'm open up to all of these kinds of people. And again, this is a pivot that is going to have to be made in your church because your church is made for people like the people who come to your church. And when you begin to say, we are interested in these other folks and we're going to put money, we're going to put resources, we're going to put the pastor's time into reaching out to people who can reach out to people, um, you're going to have a little bit of pushback and you're going to have to deal with the pushback, uh, but it's going to be worthwhile. Now, post-pivot instructions. There's just two of these in my mind. Um, the first is uh, where Paul tells to Timothy that you need to, to, to take what, I've, what you've learned from me, what you've seen in me, what I've taught to you, and pass it on to other people, faithful people, who are able to pass it on to others who can hand it off to others as well. And this whole idea of we begin to define our legacy at the fourth generation, I think is crucial. You know, if you come to a church that is resistant to church multiplication and you talk to them about the average life length of a church in America, the average, not, you know, not the total, but the average is about 30 years. You know, what will happen at 120 years out from where we are today? You know, let's have a 120 year plan. The 120 year plan has to go to the fourth generation and we need to be training the leaders who are going to train the leaders who are going to train the leaders. And you see what I'm talking about. The last of the post-pivot instructions is, is really interesting. And it's something that having read the Bible about I don't know how many hundred times in my life, I only just discovered. And this is in Titus chapter 1 verse 5. And uh, it, 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 it's really interesting. This one's worth picking up a bunch of translations and just working through reading in a whole bunch of translations. Um, the Message Bible, uh, actually, Paul tells to Titus, hey, I left you behind to finish what was half done when I left Crete. Um, and then he goes on and says, appoint elders in every city. Others say what was incomplete. Uh, others say, uh, pick up the pieces of what remains and appoint elders in other cities. You know, I, I've seen moves of God where, I mean, it had to be a revival. Or I've seen somebody that was just very charismatic and had an ability to influence a lot of people and they come sweeping through and there's all these salvations. Then what happens? It all kind of falls apart or it all turns to dust. You know, in Honolulu today, I talked to a friend recently. He's a church planter, doing a pretty good job of it. And so I thought he was going to say it was himself in answer to this question. The question was, who is the center or who is the locus in Hawaii of church multiplication today? And he said, no one. Since you and Wayne Cordero have moved on, no one has picked up the mantle. Well, I kind of challenged my friend, it's up to you, man, go for it. And he begged me to come back to Hawaii and spend some time talking to some people. And then, of course, COVID hit. But this business of evangelizing without planting churches is really a failure. It just, it, it just doesn't take us anywhere. And so I, I can identify pre-pivot instructions where Jesus actually makes some pivots, but it's instructional to others. I can identify eight 
pivot points in the New Testament that are crucial to the gospel making it to the whole wide world. And then I can find two post-pivot instructions. And I want to leave you today with a, a list of at least five. You can look at this, you know, what you see on the screen. And that it's, it's pivots that your congregation must make if you're to succeed in generating a multiplication culture in your church. I want you to write them down because, you know, it's, it's crucial to make a plan. And making a plan starts with identifying what needs to be done. And in this situation, it's what changes are we going to have to make if we're going to move our congregation to become, a, can I say it this way, a disciple-making machine and a church multiplication machine. Well, thanks for taking time and listening.